Okay. Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 14 and 15. I will be reading Acts chapter 14, verse 24, through Acts 15, verse 11. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Blessed is the reading of God's holy inspired, inerrant, infallible word through his servant Luke to us. Let's pray. Father, I ask for the operation of your grace to allow us to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to that leadership meeting, and by the Holy Spirit to have ears to hear. 
to hear the gospel, to rejoice in the gospel, to love the gospel, to be again and again awed by the gospel. To the glory of your holy name and the only Savior, Jesus Christ, I ask it. Amen. Amen. Unity. Unity in the church, in the church world, at the cost of truth. Is deadly. A, a, a naive kind of love that cloaks itself in unity is often the angel of death himself, Satan in disguise. Anybody 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, or today who seeks first and foremost for some kind of utopia within the church world. Utopia of unity and just love and don't have any division. In other words, at the expense of truth. At the expense of sound gospel doctrine. Those who seek that will always be the cause of twisting and compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually is the only thing that can save sinners for eternity. Every one of us has very nice, friendly people knock on our doors. Do a lot in my neighborhood. Jehovah Witnesses. And they all, and they sincerely mean it, that they say, we believe in Jesus Christ. But what they teach about Jesus, who He is, and how they or anybody else will be saved is really a pathway to eternal destruction unless they come to repentance and see and love and embrace the apostles' doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cry always goes out. Isn't doctrine divisive? Okay. It's a simple answer. Yes. And it's meant to be. Biblically, it's meant to be. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword of division. And division, therefore, must be happening in this present evil age. But isn't love, isn't love more important than doctrine, than, than truth? Well, the answer to that is, okay, suppose that someone whom you claim to really love and care about their well-being, suppose that you knew that the glass of water they were about to drink from contained a deadly drop of poison. 
Now you got truth versus love. Wouldn't love dictate you must open your mouth and warn them not to drink the water? Even though they sincerely believe that that water is just a pure glass of cool, refreshing water. And faith, not just in a glass of water that may be contaminated, but faith in a contaminated gospel is eternally deadly. Paul and Barnabas knew it. And they will not be fooled by the cries of love and by the cries of some kind of mushy unity at the expense of truth. But instead, Paul and Barnabas will divide. They will divide truth from error and they will divide truth tellers from error tellers. Now, yes, it is very, very true. Here's the danger for all of us sinning Christians. That often we want to divide over non-central, petty issues where with other believers we may disagree and with each other over different things that are not central gospel things we shouldn't divide over. We should let love and unity and conscience rule the day. But the message this morning is this. When unity compromises the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, then that unity is deadly. Let's go to our passage, pick up in verse 24. Chapter 14, where we left off, and Luke tells us, just remember now what he's doing now. Now they're done with their missionary journey for the most part. They're making their way now back home to have some rest and leave. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. And from there, they got on a boat. And they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together there in their home-based church in Antioch of Syria, they declared all that God had done with them over the past almost year and a half and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. That's Luke's understatement. We know from the rest of the New Testament that they remained probably up to a year and a half now in Antioch before Paul and Barnabas went on their second missionary journeys. Now, here they are. They're back home in the church in Antioch. And what is happening now while they are in Antioch is that a group of professing Jewish Christians now have made their way up northwest to these cities that we have been studying over the last number of weeks that Paul and Barnabas went to and planted churches in. Iconium, Lystra, Antioch of Pisidia, Derbe. They're up there now. 
in differing homes and houses and spreading out through the church and the city, teaching these new believers, these Gentile believers, that you can't remain that way. You must now keep the law of Moses, you men, and be circumcised. And add these other food, dietary things, etc. You must go on to do these things or you will not be saved. That's what's happening while they were in Antioch for no little period of time. And there in Antioch, Paul wrote his angriest letter. We call it the book of Galatians. And then, a bunch of these men from that particular Christian sect made their way to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are. And they began their teaching. Verse 1, chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, the church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul, in Barnabas' response, was unity, love, and tenderness at all cost. Because Paul and Barnabas knew that it's wrong for Christians to argue with each other. You can see it in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with him. There was, on this issue, no compromising with Paul and Barnabas. There was no, well, let's just agree to disagree, we'll bless each other as you go on and do your teaching ministry and we'll go do our teaching ministry. No. They had a huge difference in understanding how Jesus saves people. And so, as Luke tells us, there was a huge, that's what he means by no little, Huge dissent, division, dissension, and debate. And so, this group of Christians who have come up to Antioch, they have come from the mother church of Christianity, Jerusalem. And so they knew we need to send Paul and Barnabas and some others up there in order to address this issue and get the apostles to go on record. Pick up in verse 2 again. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders 
And they, Paul and Barnabas, declared all that God had done with them in this missionary journey to these Gentile cities. Okay. This issue that we're reading about now in history had massive ramifications. Not just for the first century church, but for the history of the church up to this very moment. Because it is a central salvation issue. The question on the table is this. Must non-Jews, must Gentiles do works of the law added to their faith in Jesus in order to be saved? Are both Jews and Gentiles saved by faith in Christ apart from any keeping of the law of Moses? And so the leadership of the church met in council. And again, we read here, there was in that church, because there were some from that particular sect within Christianity that infiltrated the meeting, we find out in Galatians. There was a lot of debate in Jerusalem over it. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is to go into that conference room and to hear the gospel through the lips of the Apostle Peter. The same gospel that Barnabas and Paul have been preaching and fighting for and defending. Verse 5. While they're there in Jerusalem now, but some Christians, believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order the Gentile Christians to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, okay, just pause now. Again, make it clear, the issue at stake is about the salvation of souls. That's what we get from verse 1. They came to Antioch, and this is what they were teaching. Unless you Gentile believers in Jesus get circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Peter ends his speech in verse 11 with this. But we Jews believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. This is the issue. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that we undeserving sinners are saved by grace 
alone. Plus nothing. Grace, Greek word charis, it means undeserved, unearned favor. And in this context, from God to you. That's grace. If in any way you deserve it, then it is not grace. Listen to Paul on that. From Romans 4, 4 to 5, Paul clearly says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as grace. Cutteries. Because you work. You earned it. You don't go to your boss or whoever's handing out the checks every two weeks and say, can you please show me some grace and give me the money? You'll sue them if they don't pay you because you had a contract to work and they owe you. It's not grace. Grace is something you don't deserve. Your paycheck you earned and deserve. And Paul says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as grace, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but instead what? Believes. Believes in him who justifies, forgives all your sins, and deems you as righteous before him forever. He justifies the ungodly, the sinner. That person's faith is counted as righteousness. That's Paul. That's grace. Let's go back to our text in verse 7. And here the apostle Peter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, about 10, 11, 12 years ago, this time, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So remember, he's referring back to what happened in Cornelius' house. That all these Gentiles were gathered together. And God, who knows the heart bore witness to them, those Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us Jews. And He, God, made no distinction between us, religious, practicing Jews, and them, Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So he makes it clear. God made no distinction between religious, quote-unquote, law-keeping Jews and pagan Gentiles. He made zero distinction in how he saved each and every one of their souls unto the eternal forgiveness that is in Christ. No distinction. And then... Peter makes a stunning statement. I want to read it very slowly to see if you can pick up on how stunning 
it is. Verse 11. But, okay, this is Peter, a Jew, talking to fellow Jewish Christians. But we Jews believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's not the stunning part yet. The last phrase is, just as they will. You would expect Peter a Jew. The gospel goes to the Jews first. It comes from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. This is all true. You would have expected him to say something like, the Gentiles are saved in the same way we Jews are. Which is actually true. When you got the gospel right, like Peter does. Not like these other professing believers that are there at the party of the circumcision. That's true, but that's not what he said. He said, we, law-keeping, kosher-eating, circumcised, Sabbath-keeping, religious Jews, were saved in the same way as these pagan Gentiles. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Peter is saying the Jewish religion, all the works that are practiced, that I, Peter, that Paul, you have practiced, Barnabas, we, all of our lives, it's our culture. We are very, very adherent to the laws and to the Jewish religion. All of that stuff did not chalk up one single brownie point in God's eyes that would cause us to be saved. It gave to us zero advantage. Their keeping of all the ceremonial laws and all the moral laws, I have never committed adultery. It did not move them one inch closer to being saved. Because salvation in them or in us or any religious activity that they perform throughout their lives or that we perform or practice has nothing to do with getting saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. These law-keeping Jews like Paul, Peter, Barnabas, in their law-keeping before their conversion, they were no closer to salvation by their works than those Zeus worshipers were in Lystra. Whom Jesus saved when Paul preached the gospel to them. And the exact same reality goes for every Roman Catholic on the planet today. 
and for every Protestant on the planet for day, for every Pentecostal or Baptist or Presbyterian, I'm raised religious and I do these things, or Eastern Orthodox, the Bible is clear. We have all sinned, Jew or Gentile, and therefore we are all in need of being made right with God or condemnation will remain at death forever upon us. We are all in need of being justified as a gift by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone. Through Faith alone. Verse 7 again. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel. Should hear the word of the gospel. And believe. That's the verb form of faith. They would hear and they would come to saving faith. They would hear and faith would arise, which is the means of being justified. God made no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. And who is justified? That has, that has nothing to do with your justification. Only one thing does. Faith. Faith in the Jew, faith in the Gentile, faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us Jews and them, Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith, like he did us Christian Jews. And the proof that in Cornelius' house, those Gentiles were saved not by their works, not by getting circumcised or converting to Judaism. The proof was that God bore witness. Listen to how he says it in verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. How did he do it? By giving them the Holy Spirit. Just as he did to us. Remember, Peter's preaching and he gets to that point and, and all who believe and the Holy Spirit falls. And they start speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter's argument now in this conference room is that God would not give his Holy Spirit to those who were unclean in their hearts. The fact that God sent the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' house at the moment they believed, apart from getting circumcised, apart from getting baptized, it shows that salvation is by faith alone. Not by faith in Jesus plus Go on to get circumcised. Or plus, go on to do any act of keeping the law of Moses. That's his argument. Again, verses 8 9. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to these Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us Jews and those Gentiles. How do we know? He cleansed their hearts by faith. Faith. No amount of works is the means of cleansing one's heart. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is the evidence of a clean heart, a clean slate. The New Testament word is justification, where God justifies dirty sinners. God saved these Gentiles by grace, Peter says, through faith, plus nothing. And that's the gospel of salvation. I was baptized, I was raised in, and I was confirmed as a Roman Catholic. And in the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that we are saved by God's grace through faith. But like Paul and Barnabas' enemies, the church goes on to say, we must add our works to our faith in Jesus in order to bring the process of justification before God to completion. No small difference. You see, back in the 1500s, in response to the great reformation of the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church met in council over a period of 18 years in Trent. We call it the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563 in response to the Protestant Reformation, which at its core recovered the gospel that was there in the text the whole time. And to put it concisely, the Reformation saying the gospel is we are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. Apart from any works. By Christ alone. And in response, the Roman Catholic Church to this day has not changed their doctrine on justification since the 1500s. I'm going to give you a few quotes from the Council of Trent. Quote, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order 
to the obtaining the grace of justification. That's me. That's exactly what I'm saying. Here's the next words. Anyone who says that, let him be accursed. Damned. Another quote. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which forgives sins for Christ's sake, or that this very confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, that's exactly what I am saying, let him be accursed. Or if anyone says that the justification received is not preserved and also not increased before God through our good works. That's exactly what I'm saying. But instead they say that those works are merely the fruits and they are the signs of justification. Absolutely they are. Then let him be accursed. And one more. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, I am justified. To every penitent sinner, the guilt of their sin is put away and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a way that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory in order to enter heaven. Well, that's exactly what the New Testament teaches and what I am saying. But if you say that, let him be damned, accursed. So the Roman Catholic Church is clear. A person, they say, is justified, forgiven of their sins before God by grace through faith, but not through faith alone. But our own good works must be added to that faith in order to keep our justification before God or to even cause it somehow to increase. They're saying that being made right with God forever or being justified, it is not completed at the initial coming of, to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, they clearly teach that it is almost, almost never completed in this life. Where many, 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 except for those great saints, need to go to a place called purgatory for who knows how many thousands of years in order to continue to pay off their debt of guilt and sins before they can enter heaven. The false doctrine of how to be saved in the Roman Catholic Church is at its core the exact same false teaching of the first century Judaizers that Paul had to fight his whole 
ministry long. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching these Gentile Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then you cannot be saved. The New Testament gospel of salvation declares that a person is absolutely justified, forgiven of all their sins, and not only that, they are deemed as perfectly righteous, not a righteousness of their own. It's someone else's righteousness. Jesus' righteousness put to their account. That's the New Testament gospel that a person is justified. How? By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Because by Jesus' perfect human life, He fulfilled the law of God. And all righteousness And by Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, He paid the penalty that we guilty sinners deserved. That's why the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 10.4, For Christ, He's the end of the law for righteousness. For everyone who believes. Jesus paid it all. Oh, I love that song. He paid it all. There is not one thing left for any justified person to pay. It is not our righteousness. Nor is it our progress in holiness or in sanctification throughout our Christian lives to any degree that qualifies us for salvation. But rather, it is Christ's righteousness which is applied to our account in the presence of God the very moment we come to saving faith in the gospel. And that's why then Peter says to his antagonist, In this Christian debate, these words in verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke of control on the neck of the disciples. Listen to him. That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Because Peter got it. Barnabas got it. John got it. They understood the gospel of grace alone. They grasp that as religious Jews, no amount of their attempt at law-keeping could in any way earn or bring to them or be the means of forgiveness of sins. 
or justification before God because they grasped through the gospel and the scripture the depth of their own sin and what it meant. They grasped that all of the law of Moses from thou shalt not commit adultery and don't murder to don't eat shellfish. They grasped that the law was never given in order to save sinners. But instead it was given to bring to light the essence of our sin. It was given in order to show us our need for grace that we cannot earn through the substitute pictured throughout the law and the Old Testament who would fulfill that law on our behalf. Paul's words are this way. For by works of the law no human being will be justified. It's impossible. No human being by their works of the law will be justified in God's sight. Why? Because through the law comes the revealing or the knowledge of your sin. And that's why the Lord Jesus himself pointed out on the Sermon on the Mount that keeping the law of God truly for everybody except himself, to keep the law of God genuinely is impossible. Because it's not aimed merely at external acts. The law of God to each individual human person is a heart issue. But it's true. One of the Ten Commandments says, do not commit adultery. And millions of people have lived and died and never transgressed that law. Technically, outwardly, and that's true. But Jesus said, you think, therefore, you're not guilty of sin? This is how he says it. You have heard that it was said, which it is in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And everyone is nailed. But I never murdered anybody. You have heard it said that those of old that you shall not commit murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, Jesus, say to you that every one of you who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. What's he driving at? Well, first of all, yes, God does look on our actions. He does distinguish between actually carrying out adultery and a lustful intent because he's not stupid. What Jesus is pointing out is our human depravity of sinfulness and darkness towards God in all of this. Not only that, of course God looks at our actions like we look at actions too because all you got to do is look at each other in our actions and you can see into the heart. I mean, that's just so clear. I mean, Jesus says, like the 1970s, follow the money. Where your money is. What do you spend it on? How you give? What do they love? He says, just, just follow the money. That's where their heart is. It's, it, but it's, it's every... So, yes, actions reveal something to the heart. And we, even human beings who are not omniscient, can see it. But Jesus' point is there's a lot of stuff that we cannot at all see in each other. But God sees. The lustful thought, the jealousy, the anger that flows sinfully from it. He sees the depths of our heart and thus he's saying all of us are guilty 10,000 times over of breaking his law. That's what gospel people grasp as Peter did and says, why are you putting God to the test? By placing on them a yoke of bondage around the neck of these new Christians in Jesus that neither even our fathers nor we have come to realize could not bear. And out of that springs the beauty of the gospel, which is salvation. Total, eternal Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by adding any of our works of obedience to God's law. Because that is an absolute impossibility. And not only that, it is a spitting into the face of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the reason that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem over this issue is because the stakes were really high. The difference between sound clear New Testament doctrine and false doctrine on the matter of salvation is the difference between eternal life and eternal condemnation. Throughout this present evil age until the second coming of Jesus there will always be those who profess faith in Jesus who run Christian organizations and churches and preach false doctrine on major 
salvific issues. And in response to all of those, Paul wrote something. In response to professing Christians who taught that faith in Jesus was necessary for salvation, but not faith alone, but, but instead, a person must add to that faith their obedience in works of law. Those who teach faith plus works equals salvation, which is the teaching on salvation in Roman Catholicism. He wrote these words. I am astonished. Now remember, since we're in Acts, we have seen these cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Antioch and Pisidia. This is who he's talking to, these new believers now, who are listening to these guys who have come up there. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel no no not that there is another one of course they all say they believe in Jesus but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ but I tell you this even if we, Barnabas and I as apostles, or an angel from heaven itself, were to come back to Lister, Iconium, Derby, and Antioch, Pisidia, if we came, or an angel from heaven came to you and preached Jesus in a way that is contrary to the way we already preached him to you, let him, me, Paul, be eternally damned. As I have said before, so I say again now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received in Acts chapter 13 and 14, let him be eternally damned. Love in unity at the cost of truth is always deadly. We as believers are called to love. Oh, it's all over the New Testament. It's the fruit of faith. Faith working itself out in love, Paul, in that Galatians letter. We are called as Christians to seek the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But this Jerusalem Council teaches us that unity with professing believers is wrong when it compromises the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let us go on to love the truth of our salvation. The truth 
of the gospel, to hold to it for the sake of Christ and the sake of sinners. And as we sing and prepare our hearts as baptized Christians, prepare to celebrate this gospel in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a gift to such undeserving sinners. We thank you for the gift of feeling appropriate guiltiness before you in ourselves and for the astounding joy of believing this gospel of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through your Holy Spirit producing in us faith alone, apart from any works, to the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.